Heavenly Father, we come back to you now in this evening hour, eager with anticipation that we might know more of your Son. As we approach this evening in our text what might appear on the surface to be throwaway verses, passages of Scripture that are filled with a list of names. Would you show us very plainly and clearly just how significant they are to our understanding of who your son is and what his gospel is all about? And so we ask now, Lord, that you would speak and speak clearly, for your servants are listening. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 will be our text this morning, the Gospel of Matthew, this first book of the New Testament. And as those of you who are with us this morning uh, understood, as I explained it there, we've done a little bit of a switch. Your bulletin tells you that you're getting a sermon from Exodus chapter 1. That happened this morning. And we're going to switch and we're going to preach through Matthew in the evenings and Exodus in the mornings for the coming uh, weeks and months ahead as long as God <clears throat> provides opportunity. But this new sermon series on Matthew begins tonight, and it's going to be a fantastic look at this account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. A wonderful opportunity to think together on who He is and why he came, and what he came to accomplish. And we're calling this series a new Genesis, which I'll talk about here momentarily as we get into the text. But to begin, let me simply read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which will be our uh, text of focus this evening. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you pay attention to it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, <clears throat> and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. <clears throat> and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, 
and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, as one man once said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. Never before in history, and never since, and never will be in the future, a man born with such an entrance and an exit, and with such a part to play. Jesus is unique in all of history, isn't he? He's the God-man, the second person of the Trinity taken on flesh who was for us and for our salvation, become a man, who took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. And as we heard even recently in some of our Christmas time sermons, he did all this to die. If you remember our Christmas Eve service, we said, all children who are born will die, but this child was born to die. This makes him unique. It means that his entrance, the virgin birth, and his exit, his death on the cross and his resurrection and his subsequent bodily ascension into heaven, and the part he played, being Savior to his people, are all remarkable and unique in human history and deserving of our special attention, even this lengthy genealogy. At these first 17 verses of Matthew at first blush might seem a bit unnecessary to waste our time on. We did just get done with Christmas after all, and now we're going to spend the next couple of weeks revisiting the Christmas story and starting with the genealogy. Be honest with yourselves. These are the parts of Scripture that we skip over in our annual reading plan usually. Because you know you can't pronounce half of these words, and so you just kind of, okay, it's a list of names, list of names, and back to the story. That's why it only takes seven minutes to read Nehemiah. (laughs) But these 17 verses hold the keys to understanding who Jesus really was and his significance for you and for me. These 17 verses reveal to us the person and work of Christ all at once. Everything we need to know about his person and the gospel of his kingdom is revealed to us in these 17 verses. They shed tremendous light on the gospel that is what he came to do and for whom he came to do it, as well as his person. Who was he? Why was he sent? And what was he fulfilling? And so this evening, I want us to see three things that answer the question, why should I care about Jesus? What's so special about him? And most of all, why is this genealogy even here? The three things I want you to see about Jesus are these. Number one, I want you to see that his name is important. Jesus' name is important. Number two, I want you to see that his title is important. His title 
is important. And lastly, I want you to know that his heritage, that's his lineage, his genealogy, is important. Let's look at his name together. As soon as the book opens, even before we get to his name, we have to address this question of why we're calling this sermon series a new Genesis. Again, it might seem odd to revisit this story right after Christmas, but these things are so beneficial to us that week to week we can't tire of hearing about Jesus Christ and his gospel. But as soon as we come to Matthew chapter 1, what do we see? The book of the genealogy. That's the very first phrase that we see in this text. And what you may not see in, uh, in reading that in your English translations is that literally what it says is the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. That's the word that's used there, genealogy, genesis. It's the word that's used to uh, name the first book of the Old Testament in the Greek translation of that Bible. And this is the genesis of Jesus Christ. That's the literal title. It's the genesis or the generations of Jesus' story, the beginning of his story. And for us, for those who are in Christ, it's the story of a new beginning for us, isn't it? Matthew is the story of a new beginning for us. It's a new family tree for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. It's a new genealogy that's rooted in Jesus rather than in Adam. It's a new Genesis. We know that in Genesis, Adam was our representative. He stood for us as our federal head is the terminology. It just means the representative of mankind. He was our representative in the garden as the first man. Uh, People often struggle with the question of why, if Adam sinned, do I have to suffer the punishment for it? Now, I, I can see that not everybody here likes American football, but bear with me for the analogy. If someone on the offensive line moves before the quarterback snaps the ball, that guy doesn't just get up and walk back 10 yards and start behind the rest of his team, does he? Who moves back? The whole team. Why? Because they're wearing the same uniform. And Adam in the garden was in our uniform. And he jumped. And the whole team got set back. In Adam we all fell. And so we all sinned with him and fell in him in his first transgression, didn't we? And so he was our representative and he failed. He failed to represent humanity well and to obey God's commandments. And all mankind fell with him. That means life lived from the first Genesis is a life that leads to death. Life lived from the first Genesis is a life that leads to death. It is sin and curse and separation from God for all mankind. That's life from the first Genesis. Secondly, we need to see that all the promises made in Genesis, that first book of our Bibles, have been awaiting their ultimate fulfillment. Of course, there have been shadows of their fulfillment and partial fulfillments of some of those promises, but all of the promises made by God in the book of Genesis were awaiting their ultimate representation, their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And we see all that happen here in Matthew. He's the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. He's the promised blessing to the nations made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. He's the promised offspring of Abraham who would bring great reward to the family of Abraham in Genesis 15, 1 through 4. Perhaps most significantly, he's the promised lamb for the offering in Genesis 22, verse 8. 
He's also the promised lion from the tribe of Judah, from whose hand the scepter would never depart, and to whom all the nations would pay tribute, Genesis 49, 10. He's even the promised deliverer that Joseph mentions at the end of his life, who would rescue God's people from a foreign and hostile land in Genesis 50, verse 24. So we're calling this series a new Genesis because it is the new beginning for us. It's the story of a new family tree. It's a life lived from the new Genesis rather than from the first Genesis. And it's a life that leads to life rather than death. That's who Christ is. He is the second Adam who came that we might have life and have it abundantly in him. And he represents for us all of the fulfillment of God's promises in the book of Genesis all the way back thousands of years before he was ever born. And here he is arriving on the scene through this lengthy list of names that are so important for us to apprehend who he is and why he came. Well, what's about, what about his name is so important? The very first thing we come to here after this idea of the Genesis is the name Jesus, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. As you've heard before, I'm sure... Uh, Almost all, if not all of you here, are familiar that the name Jesus is simply the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. It's the name Joshua. It's a name which means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. You know when you see in your Old Testaments, there's a large capital L and then the small case capitals O-R-D, like little capital O, little capital R. That's God's covenant name, Yah is the phrase Joshua, Yah, that's the name Yah saves. He is the one who saves his people from their sins. And Jesus is given this name, which is tremendously important. It's the very purpose of his having been sent to earth, of him taking on flesh and becoming like us in every way excepting for sin. He was born into this sinful world in order to redeem sinners from the consequences of their sin by his own blood. Jesus saves. He saves us from our sins. Now, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, I'm not that bad. Uh, I don't know how much saving I really need. And I can only tell you, my friend, if that's how you feel, that you have not considered who God really is. God is so holy. Think for a moment with me about what we read in Isaiah chapter 6. God is so holy that the angels he created to be in his presence eternally are unable to bear the sight of him and have to cover their faces. And his presence is so glorious that these very same angels have to hover constantly, never resting from their posture, lest their feet, which they also cover, touch the ground around which God's presence dwells. That's how holy he is. There's Nothing about him that corresponds to us in any way regarding his perfection and uniqueness. We, each one of us, are full of sin. We sin because we're sinners, and we're sinners because we sin. Our nature is corrupt, and we're separated from God, essentially, because of our sinfulness. We can be nowhere near him, and he can be nowhere near us. His only disposition towards sin is wrath. Perhaps you still think that you're not that bad of a person. I struggle 
most days to not hit the snooze button. Now, of course, the snooze button, hitting the snooze button isn't a sin, is it? But it's reflective of my finiteness and weakness that I can no more get myself out of bed on time in some days as I can save myself and stand on my own righteous merits before the God of the universe. Each one of us is in desperate need of salvation, and Jesus came to save his people from their sins. His name is important because it epitomizes what he does, who he is, and who he was born to be. And once again, let me remind you that he was born to die. In order for him to accomplish the purpose that his name suggests, that he will save his people from their sins, he must die on the cross. Now, we don't name our children like this anymore, do we? Indeed, we can't name our children with the same sort of prophetic accuracy and significance that was given to Joseph by the angel, but we do expect things to work according to their names still, don't we? We expect certain names to mean a certain thing. We expect deacons to serve, don't we? That's what we expect of our diaconate here at the church. Why? Because the word means servant. And so we expect that our deacons are going to be serving the body here at Christ's Covenant Church. We expect that our elders are going to be shepherding, that they're going to provide oversight and spiritual care for the members of Christ's Covenant Church. Why? Because that's what their name means. We expect pitchers to pitch and not to catch. And we can expect Jesus to save and not to fail because that's what his name means. His name means Savior. Have you experienced the salvation through Jesus Christ, which can only be gotten through him? We talk about salvation by grace alone here. That means it's all according to the kindness and mercy of God. We don't earn it. Titus chapter 3 tells us, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We talk about salvation through faith alone. We only need to look to Jesus in faith to be saved, not faith plus anything else. It's not faith in the good works we do. It's not faith in the repentance we bring. It's not faith in the, the, the righteousness that we bring. It's just faith in Jesus Christ. And we talk about salvation through Christ alone. Indeed, salvation can be found nowhere else, can it? He is alone exclusively the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no one else. Have you experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus' name is incredibly important. It's the name that promises us salvation. But Jesus' title is equally important, isn't it? Now, if you were to ask your average person on the street, perhaps who grew up in the church or maybe has never read their Bible, what the, the word Christ means, they would tell you that it's Jesus' last name. It was probably Joseph's last name, and Jesus inherited it from his earthly father, right? Joseph Christ. And then when Jesus was born, he adopted his last name to himself. That's not what it is. You know that it's not a name, correct? The word Christ is his title, not his name. His name would have been Jesus, the son of Joseph. His title was Christ. It means anointed one. It's the Greek translation of that Hebrew word Messiah, 
the anointed one of God. It means, in other words, that Jesus was sent for and empowered for or anointed for a specific purpose. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. This is incredibly important and worth turning the page a little bit if you have your Bible with you. In Luke chapter 4, we read of the temptation of Jesus and then the inauguration of his earthly ministry beginning in chapter 14 or excuse me, verse 14. And then in verse 16, it says this, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And then he quotes from Isaiah here. Listen to what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me, there it is, Messiah, He's been anointed by God, for what? To proclaim gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of of the Lord's favor. This is what Christ means. This is what he was sent to do, what he was anointed to accomplish, to proclaim liberty, to bring liberty to those in captivity. Captivity to our own sin. We're enslaved to it apart from Christ. We cannot choose not to sin apart from Christ. We're enslaved to it. And he was sent to bring liberty to us. Recovering of sight to the blind. Apart from God, we are blind and, and our minds are dead to the truth of God's word. We're unable to see the kingdom of God unless we're born again, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We can't see the truth. We can't apprehend the truth. We can't understand the kingdom of God or the teaching of Jesus until our eyes are opened by his spirit to do so. And he was anointed to grant that to us, to his people. If you have eyes to see, it's because Christ came to give you eyes to see. Liberty to the oppressed, oppressed by the constant fear of death and damnation. Don't let anyone fool you. The thought of standing before the creator of the universe who is holy, holy, holy is as terrifying a prospect as ever was. And everybody knows that that's where they're going. That's oppression. That's fear-inducing truth. And he came to us to free us from the fear of standing before God. The perfect love of Jesus Christ in our lives casts out the fear of condemnation, doesn't it? Why? Because there is no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. He came to proclaim liberty and good news to the poor, the poor in spirit who know that they cannot save themselves, those who can only look to God. The year of the Lord's favor, that is the reality that God, out of his mere good pleasure, has entered into a covenant of grace with us to draw us out of our estate of misery and into an estate of salvation by our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That's the favor of God. That's the blessing that Jesus came to bring to his people. This is what his title means. It's the title given to him by God the Father. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who came to save 
and was empowered to do so. That's his name and title. Do you see how important these little details are for us to lay hold of? We can't gloss over these passages in Scripture that are very familiar to us. Yes, Jesus Christ, he's Jesus Christ. He's so much more than just a name and a title. He is the reality of what his name means and all that his title promises to us as people. What a thing to teach to our children. Children, you, you kids who are here tonight, I, I imagine, I remember when I was, it's been a long time, but I remember when I was the age of some of you, I loved superheroes when I was a kid. There's the, per, there's the perennial debate between Batman and Superman that goes on between young men since age immemorial. We all have superheroes, and now with the advent of CGI technology, nine out of every five movies that's being made is a Marvel superhero movie, isn't it? Everybody wants a hero. Everybody wants someone who's got a great title, Superman, Captain America, Batman. I don't know what, what's cool about him, but... Everybody wants a hero. You kids love these sorts of things that you want heroes and someone to look up to, someone who does great things and who's not afraid like sometimes you are and who's able to overcome difficult situations like you wish you could and who stands tall in the face of danger like you want to do when you're older. And superheroes inspire and encourage us. What better person to look to? What a better name or title is there than Jesus the Christ? He's the one that we want our children to look up to as the superhero par excellence, the one that God sent not just to, to defend America or not to beat the Joker or not to overcome some other anti-hero, but to save his people from their sins. And he's not powered by the sun or by a belt full of gadgets, but he's empowered by the anointing of the Holy Spirit which enables him to go into the world and accomplish all that God sent him to do. That's who Jesus is. We should delight in his name. The very thought of him should fill our hearts with sweetness. He is our only hope and joy and our eternal prize and glory. Do you delight in Jesus? In his name, Jesus? Is it the sweetest name you know? In his title, is Christ a word that slips out of your mouth when something happens to you on the road or when you stub your toe? Or is it the name of the one who is anointed by the Spirit to bring life and liberty and sight to your captive and oppressed and a blind heart? Well, the last thing I want us to see this evening is the importance of his heritage, his family tree. There are a few things that we should notice. I'm not going to reread this list of names for you. Thank you for your patience. But there's a couple things that we have to see. First, it tells us that he's the son of David. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, the son of David. This was huge, would have been tremendous to the Jewish readers of this first gospel. The son of David was a term reserved for the fulfilled covenant promise of God made to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 12 through 14, God, Samuel, you know, excuse me, David wanted to build a tabernacle for God, a temple for the Lord, a place for him to dwell. And God comes to him and says, that's not what's going to happen. Rather, I'm going to do something for you. We'll pick up the reading in verse 12. 
God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." This is the promise made to David, the Davidic covenant as it's known. God made a promise to David that one of his descendants from his own body would rule over God's people forever and ever. His kingdom would have no end. And this promise was being waited for and waited for and waited for for a thousand years since David's reign ended. And here we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David. From his own body, one that God raised up, his own son. This is covenant fulfillment. It's the promise of a ruler for God's people who would have a kingdom that would never end. Great David's greater son, the one upon whose shoulders the government would rest, the one who would deliver his people from all oppression and all their enemies. You'll notice that throughout this genealogy, there are 15 kings named. It's a royal genealogy. It's written to highlight for us the kingship of Jesus, the fact that he deserves to rule on the throne of heaven. God sent his son, the true and better David, to rule over his people forever. I wonder if you remember God's words in Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 23 and 24. It's that place in the Old Testament where God declares that he is against the shepherds of Israel. He's mad at them because they've failed to shepherd his people well. They've been abusing the sheep and scattering them. They've failed to heal them and bind them up and care for them and seek after them and bring them back into the fold. And in response to this, God says, you know what? I'm against you, shepherds. Woe to you, shepherds. I'm going to come down myself and shepherd my people. I'm going to come down myself and gather my people from all the nations where you scattered them. Rather than tearing them down, I'm going to build them up. Rather than injuring them, I'm going to bind them. Rather than taking food from their mouth, I'm going to feed them and tend to them and do all the things a shepherd is meant to do. Very reminiscent of Jesus' words in Luke 4, isn't it? That he was going to proclaim liberty and, and sight to the blind and so forth. It's the healing, caring, shepherding ministry of Jesus Christ. But then it says this in verse 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now, David's been dead for a long time when Ezekiel's writing. Who's he talking about? He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. That's covenant language, isn't it? And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. When Jesus shows up on the scene and is called the son of David, it is the fulfillment of all these anticipated realities that the king was coming to rule and to take care of his people, and the shepherd was coming to shepherd and to feed his flock as he gathered them in. That's who he is. He's the son of David, the son of David, the promise 
of the next David that the people had been waiting for. It means that Jesus' genealogy tells us that he's the fulfillment of covenant promises made from a thousand years before to Israel's greatest king. It's a statement, in other words, of God's faithfulness and love, isn't it, that Jesus is the son of David. He's keeping his promises. He's the king, the one who calls for us and sought us out when we were scattered on the hills of the world. And he brought us in, binding up our injuries, healing our broken hearts, tending all our needs, and feeding us from his word. Well, it tells us, second, that he's the son of Abraham. As we look at his heritage, this is likewise important to note. He's the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was not the farthest back you could go in Jesus' genealogy, was it? In fact, Luke and Luke, uh, Luke's genealogy of Jesus Christ, he goes all the way back to Adam, doesn't he? We could have gone back way farther than Abraham, but there's a point in highlighting that Jesus is the son of, Ab- of, of Abraham. Luke goes to Adam to show us that Jesus is the second head of a new humanity, the son of man, as Jesus likes to call himself. But Matthew wants his readers to answer, to know, excuse me, the answer to the question, why is it important to know this Jesus? Because he's the fulfillment of a promise made to Abraham, which we talked about a bit this morning in worship. He's the promised blessing to all the nations of the earth, isn't he? Jesus is the promised blessing to all the nations of the earth. Now, that might not mean much to you, but it should. It means that Jesus Christ, the Savior King we're reading about, came to set people at liberty, didn't do this just for Israel, but for the whole world, for the nations, for you and for me. Our inclusion in the gospel of Jesus Christ is owing to this promise that through Abraham all the nations would be blessed. This little part of his genealogy, Abraham, he's the son of Abraham, the promised offspring who would be a ruler of the nations and a blessing to the world. And just to emphasize this fact, Matthew gives us four other names that ought to stand out to you. Did you catch them as we read them? Four foreign names, and there's something uniquely uh, similar about each one of them. In verse 3, Tamar. In verse 5, Rahab and Ruth. And in verse 6, the wife of Uriah, who is Bathsheba. These four women who, in almost all accounts, have no reason to be included in the genealogy. They never would have been in a traditional Jewish genealogy, included, especially since they had husbands. It's not as though there was nobody left to name alongside of them. In fact, each of them is named alongside of a man. It's very strange. It's very unique. But what do we know about these four women? They're all foreign. Tamar is mentioned in Genesis 38. In Genesis 38, Judah takes a Canaanite woman for his son Ur, and her name was Tamar. It's highly unlikely that she should have had anything to do with the nation of Israel, aside from the fact that Judah was acting out of sin. And yet here she is included in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab, as you know, was a prostitute in the Canaanite city of Jericho, a Canaanite woman who was a prostitute, listed alongside of Tamar, who disguised herself as a prostitute, and then mentioned alongside of Ruth, 
who was a Moabite woman. Do you know how, what great lengths the author of Ruth goes to to emphasize the fact that she was a Moabite woman? He says it four times. Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess. He's not poking at her. He's highlighting the fact that this woman who had no business being counted among the people of God was being brought in and welcomed and indeed redeemed by Boaz, wasn't she? Are you familiar with the origins of the Moabites? It's one of those delightful Bible stories from the early parts of Genesis as Lot impregnated one of his daughters, the child of which was Moab. Their origins are from one of the worst stories in the Bible, and yet here Ruth is in the direct lineage of Jesus Christ. And then we have the wife of Uriah. You remember Uriah the Hittite. It's very likely, and her name indicates that she was probably a Hittite woman. So you have these four non-Jewish women being included in the list of God's genealogy for his son Jesus Christ. This is pretty good news for those of us who are not of Jewish descent. That from the beginning of time, all of these foreign people have been included in the people of God just to give us glimpses of the fact that the gospel of his son Jesus Christ was going to go to the whole world, to you and to me. The last thing as we wrap this up, I want you to notice how notorious many of these names are. What a group of sinners assembled in one passage for us. Judah already talked about him. Tamar, talked about her already. Rahab, the prostitute. David, the adulterer who killed Uriah because he didn't want him to find out about his wife. Solomon, who had a thousand wives and was led astray by, uh, after other gods. Rehoboam, who ruined and divided the kingdom of Israel. Manasseh, who the Bible says did exceedingly far worse than all the nations. This entire list nearly is made up of failures, of sinners, of deadbeats, of rebels, of wicked men and idolaters and worse. And doesn't this speak to each of us? Doesn't it compel you to drop your excuses and come to Jesus for forgiveness? This is his family. <laughs> it means that any of us can be included in his family if we come to him in faith. That's who he came to save, to open his arms to all who would come to him in faith. He's a Savior who came for people like these, for people like me, and people like you. His name is really important. He saves, and his title is really important. He was anointed to do it by the Spirit of God, and his heritage is tremendously important for us to meditate on because it shows us that while the gospel of Jesus Christ is extremely exclusive, he's the only way. It is also remarkably inclusive. It's for anyone who comes to him hungry and thirsty for what he has to offer. I heard one time, and I, I racked my brain to try to figure this out. I wish I could remember. Somebody said once that Jesus' genealogy works both ways. Backwards, look at this, backwards, from his birth all the way back to the beginning. Sinner, 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 sinner. Rebel, 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 idolater, adulterer, murderer, thief, liar, coward, all the way back to the beginning. And it works both ways. Follow the spiritual descendants of Jesus all the way to today, all the way to you and to me, and we see the same types of people. 
sinners, pagan idolaters, adulterers, liars, cowards, thieves. And yet he offers forgiveness for all of those sins to each one of us, doesn't he? The genealogy goes both ways. But the mercy of our Savior, a Savior who saves his people, who is anointed to set us free from sin and death, a king to rule us with power and holiness and wisdom, a covenant-fulfilling descendant of David sent to bless us, means that you and I can experience all the promises of God made to his people through his Son, Jesus Christ. This genealogy shows us God's faithfulness to his promises, his love for sinners, and his mercy to the world. Do you see how this genealogy is given for your benefit? How it's worth spending time meditating in order to know better who Jesus is and the gospel for which he came to die. The, the, the good news that he proclaimed to people like you and me, people like his ancestors. Let's close with the words of Spurgeon who said this about this genealogy. He said, let us make ourselves familiar with our Lord's pedigree, and think much of His being born into the world. Especially, let us see that He was literally of the house of David and of the seed of Abraham. For many prophecies in the Old Testament pointed to this fact. It means that He is truly the Messiah, the Prince, which was to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this list of names, this genealogy of Jesus Christ, which reminds us of so many important realities. What his name means, he's our Savior. What his title means, he's our Messiah, anointed to proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed and captive and blind. And his heritage, Lord, reminds us that we are all welcome to come to him in faith and to receive a seat at his table. He's given us the right to be called children of God. And we thank you that we're included in this new genesis begun with Jesus Christ and that our family tree, as ugly as it is, at the very root of it all, is the God-man, your Son, our Savior, the Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.